You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The 3CX compromise involved a two-stage supply chain attack Impersonating ChatGPT, Russia's security units say they're cracking down on leaks. Updates on the Discord Papers case. Belarus arrests a pro-Russian hacktivist. Rob Boyce from Accenture Security on dark web cyber criminals targeting CRM systems. Our guest is Mike Lowy from the Tide Foundation with an innovative approach to distributed key security. And is Minsk going wobbly on Moscow? From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, April 20th, 2023. Mandiant reported this morning that the exploitation of 3CX, a supply chain attack, was itself enabled by a previous supply chain attack. The company's report said, In March 2023, Mandiant Consulting responded to a supply chain compromise that affected 3CX desktop app software. During this response, Mandiant identified that the initial compromise vector of 3CX's network was via malicious software downloaded from Trading Technologies' website. This is the first time Mandiant has seen a software supply chain attack lead to another software supply chain attack. The attack is being attributed to UNC-4736, generally regarded as a North Korean threat actor. Its activities have been related to the financially motivated North Korean apple juice activity, as reported by CISA. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 wrote today that they're observing increased malicious activity impersonating ChatGPT, The hackers have been seen creating sites claiming to be OpenAI and attempting to trick users into sharing personal information or even in some cases paying for the ChatGPT service. From November of last year through early this month, the researchers observed a 910% increase in web domains that were ChatGPT-related. They say that in this same time frame, we observed a 17,818% growth of related squatting domains from DNS security logs. Detections of around 118 ChatGPT-related malicious URLs 
were also caught daily by the company's URL filtering system. The faux sites are said to be reminiscent of OpenAI's legitimate site, but seek to exfiltrate user data or even attempt to make the user pay for ChatGPT, which, when legitimately used through OpenAI, is free. The Institute for the Study of War reports that Russia's FSB is undertaking a comprehensive overhaul of the company's security apparatus, apparently in response to a growing concern about leaks and security breaches. The Institute says Russian state-controlled outlet TASS reported on April 19th that the FSB and the main directorate of the Security Service of the Ministry of Internal Affairs have been conducting mass checks at the Moscow Central District Internal Affairs Directorate and several Moscow District Police offices for the past several weeks due to the leakage of data from Russian security forces at the request of Ukrainian citizens. Police departments appear to be the focus of what amounts to an incipient purge. The researchers state... The reported FSB and MVD raids on the Moscow police departments are occurring against the backdrop of a series of arrests and dismissals of prominent members of the Roskvardia, Russian National Guard, leadership. The Kremlin may be pushing for such arrests and investigations in order to conduct an overhaul of the domestic security apparatus to oust officials who have fallen out of Kremlin favor and consolidate further control of internal security organs. That's certainly possible, and there's plenty of historical precedent in Russia for this sort of purge, but the possibility that the security organizations are spooked by leaks is also a real one. The U.S. has also had recent difficulty with leaks. Jack Teixeira, the Air National Guardsman alleged to have taken and leaked the Discord papers to a small group of young and besotted followers on the gamer social platform, has been charged is in custody awaiting trial and has yet to enter a plea. The New York Times, which has published a review of where the case stands, comments on the apparent motive, which appears to be devoid of the usual elements of ideology or political commitment and also of any compromise or financial gain. The motive seems to have been as simple as a desire to show off in front of online friends. The head of Anonymous Russia, a young man who went by the hacker name Rati, has, according to Kilnet, been arrested by Belarusian authorities, Flashpoint reports. It's worth noting that this particular group is not the Anonymous that sought to pester Russia, but rather an alternative organization devoted to Russia's cause and operating as a kind of junior partner to Kilnet. Kilnet has said it would appoint a new leader for Anonymous Russia, the reconstituted group will concentrate on two things. First, they've declared a war on CIA rats, an expression that in their reading means pro-Ukrainian hacktivist groups, such as the IT Army of Ukraine, a group of pro-Ukrainian hacktivists formed shortly after Russia's 2022 invasion, which is specifically named in one of the channel's messages. The mention of this trope, lifted from Russian propaganda, is likely meant to confirm the new group's pro-Kremlin credentials. Second, the group has also announced that it would transform itself into a DDoS-for-hire group that anyone can purchase. However, it also specified that the project would be aimed at Dark Web 2. This latter announcement suggests that Anonymous Russia will perform DDoS attacks 
against darknet markets similarly to Killnet. It's unclear why Raiti was arrested, but Killnet was quick to identify and, Forcepoint says, dox him. The reconstituted anonymous Russia seems to be moving, along with its better-known and more active, bigger colleague, Killnet, in the direction of a profit-making enterprise. Last month, Killnet said that it was organizing itself as a private cyber operations corporation along the lines of the Wagner Group, the notorious private military corporation. The rise of Wagner-like groups in cyberspace was the subject of a warning this week by the UK's NCSC, which, according to the record, is warning that such groups are expected to represent a particular threat to critical infrastructure. And finally, lest one conclude that the arrest of Raiti was a sign that Minsk was going wobbly on Moscow, that's pretty clearly not happening. Ghostwriter is back. Polish authorities say that a major propaganda campaign by the Belarusian group Ghostwriter was detected on April 18th. Attribution was unusually quick, and Poland has taken steps to control any damage. The record reports... The group's goal in Poland is to disrupt the country's relations with its allies, including Ukraine, the U.S., and NATO countries, according to Poland's Ministry of National Defense. The group's campaigns have also aimed to foment social unrest among Polish citizens. It's that old familiar mischief-making. Don't worry about persuasion, just go for confusion. Coming up after the break, Rob Boyce from Accenture Security on dark web cyber criminals targeting CRM systems. Our guest is Mike Lowy from the Tide Foundation with an innovative approach to distributed key security. Stay with us. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. An organization called the Tide Foundation is looking to improve cybersecurity with a clever approach to access keys that splits them into millions of pieces distributed across 20 distributed servers around the world. Mike Lowy is co-founder of the Tide Foundation. What we're looking to do is to redefine the authority model in, in the digital world. Today, we have a scenario where the security of, of our systems and the, and the protection of sensitive information is all, at the end of the day, um, reliant on blind trust. Blind trust in, in the people that build, administer, and, and manage our IT systems. And what we're, the, those, those people today have effectively carte blanche authority over the sensitive information that these systems hold. And, and we're looking to redefine that so that that's no longer the case. When we say blind trust, what exactly do we mean by that? So if you think about, even, even take, take, take into account um, zero trust. So zero trust, a methodology that was kind of introduced 10 years ago. But even, even with the implementation of zero trust, we're still seeing the, the, most, the most horrific breaches in, in history. And, and, and breaches have, have increased in, in frequency and severity. And, and the reason for that is because no matter how much effort we put into applying that model of, of constantly verifying and, and checking and, and making sure that, you know, the, whoever we're providing this access to is who, who they say they are, there is some kind of root authority, some, something somewhere that has to make that final decision of can I provide access to this resource? Can you, can you swipe and open this front door? Can you access this file? And that, that authority lives somewhere on something and, and is administered by by someone. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that means that there's always this kind of Achilles heel that, that exists inside of a system, whether it's the identity and access management system, the firewall, whatever, whatever security apparatus it is, and there's no way to, there's no way to verify the integrity of, of those, those people administering those systems, whether, whether there's malintent or whether they're just human beings that make mistakes, accidentally click on the wrong links. That's, that's what I mean. And so what is it that you're proposing here? What's the technology behind uh, what you're looking to accomplish here? So if you think about, th- think about even a banking system. So a banking system holds, holds a huge amount of um, information on, on its customers. Um, it would have identity information, financial history, all kinds of information that at certain points in time is, is, net, is required by the bank. At certain points in time is required by the customer. But beyond those, those points in time when that information is needed, the system, there's no good reason for the system to have access or authority over that information. In, in fact, it doesn't want it for, because it's a liability for the bank and it's a, it's a huge risk for the, for the end customer if, if that information is then appropriated or misappropriated. What, we, uh, what we're looking to do is using a technology to... To, to effectively decouple the authority over, over digital assets, for want of a better word, whether that's like identity information, financial information, um, or even network access rights, 
and decouple that from the systems that today it lives inside of. So if you think about each customer record in a bank being locked with a different key, and none of those keys sitting in the bank system anymore. So even the, the, you know, your, your super users, your, your administrators don't have access to those keys. And putting those keys somewhere where they can be used only as appropriate um, but cannot be stolen, cannot be used in a context outside of what they were designed to do. And, and that's a, and from a technology perspective, what we've done is to have those keys not live anywhere but kind of live everywhere. So a key is, is in fact, um, born in 20 pieces across a fully decentralized network and operated in a way that it's never actually put together. So effectively, no one holds that key. Hmm. Well, help me understand here because I, I, I think um, a common line of thought here could be that don't you need a key to access the keys? You know, it's sort of it's, it's keys all the way down, right? <laughs> like I think about even with something like my my password manager or something like that. Ultimately, there's a master key, but you're, what you're saying is you all have found a clever way around that. So yeah, so that's that's an awesome question. So so your, your password, your master password to your password manager is is effectively the the keys to the kingdom. The question is, where does, where does that key sit? Where does that master password live? And how is that master password authenticated or validated to check that you've entered that password incorrectly? So if, if that is being performed by any, any single server, any centralized service, again, where, where, which is administered by, by people or, or is accessible to, to people, then it's always compromisable. If that process of even, even validating a password is done in a way that no one ever gets to see the password. Password doesn't live anywhere in, 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 that, in that kind of singular form. Then the integrity of the process that checks that password is, is sacrosanct, can't be circumvented, and there's no longer a central repository holding all of those usernames and passwords and sitting in you know, one convenient place for an attacker to, to, to steal and, and kind of you know, perform all kinds of interesting brute force attacks offline. So what we've developed is a way to authenticate a user, be it a first or second factor. Obviously, adding, adding additional factors is, is, is you know, highly advisable. But starting with just that very root um, ubiquitous form of authentication, username and password, but making sure that that password lives nowhere and that password is is checked in a way that um, no one actually gets access to, to the secret, to the password itself. And, and we do that using a, a decentralized network where it's almost like a um, multiple servers performing a small part of that process in a way that reveals no information to them. And in fact, that those servers don't even know what they're doing and for whom. And what does all this look like to the user? Is, what's the user experience like? Absolutely no change to the user experience. So from the user end user's perspective, they're, they're typing a username and password into their banking platform or their social media site or whatever they're, whatever they're authenticating to. Behind the scenes, that, that password is being um, authenticated by 20 different endpoints simultaneously rather than one singular source. 
So as far as the user is concerned, they enter a username and password. That could be through a browser. Um, but there is no, there's no one in the middle that, that can compromise that process. That's Mike Lowy from the Tide Foundation. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert Boyce. He is Managing Director and Global Lead for Cyber Resilience at Accenture. Uh, Rob, we have been tracking that some folks on the dark web are coming after uh, folks who are using CRMs, these customer relationship management systems. And I know that's been a focus for you and your colleagues there at Accenture. What can you share with us today? Yes, th- thank you again for having me, Dave. It's always a pleasure being here. Uh, yeah, this has been a really interesting area of research for us. We have seen a significant increase in threat activity against CRMs in the last year. When I say significant, I'm talking uh, 400% or more. Hmm. And you know, we, we, of course, then started asking ourselves, well, why is this happening? And, and what do we think is driving this? And, and you know, historically, CRM systems haven't been a huge target for, say, like ransomware threat actors, because it's very hard to move from a CRM into the other parts of the environment that allow you to compromise and, and launch ransomware. But we have also seen a huge evolution recently with uh, ransomware gangs or, I guess, threat actor groups like uh, Karakur and Lapsus, where they have been moving to extortion only uh, through data theft, data theft extortion attacks. And, and what that really means is they're looking at stealing data and then you know, extorting the, the owners of that data uh, for funds to try and, to try and receive payment. Um, so that's, I think, since that's been having so much success recently, I think we're starting to see this as becoming now evolving into a true uh, threat ecosystem um, because we're also seeing initial access brokers focus on being able to um, you know, uh, harvest credentials uh, for CRMs specifically and sell those on the dark web. We're actually also seeing threat actors um, develop zero days specifically for CRM systems, which we had not seen really either of those two things before. You know, we, we've seen these um, initial access brokers sell access, you know, it used to be in, in just a year ago, hundreds of dollars. And now we've seen it all the way up to $30,000 to purchase access to these systems. So people are starting to realize the value of the data and how it can be used, not just from an extortion point of view, but also how that data can be used to be weaponized and, and secondary attacks, as an example. So is this a matter of uh, potential embarrassment for the folks who are using the CRMs that you know, they don't want the, uh, you know, the, the notes that they've left about their customers and uh, the various you know, stages they may be along in a sales process? Uh, they want all that to, to stay private. Yeah, well, I think the industries we're seeing most targeted by this right now are, are healthcare, financial services, telco, legal, you know, mm. uh, industries that are very highly regulated. And so it's probably an aspect of embarrassment, but there's also an aspect of the regulatory implications with that data uh, being stolen. And so, you know, I think there, there's, there's that. Um, I also think that those industries are very unique in uh, the way you could um, weaponize that data for secondary attacks. Like, uh, you know, as an example, I think we talked about this once before, you know, being able to have data from a CRM would give you an immense amount of information to launch a very 
sophisticated or high fidelity uh, email business compromise attack or being able to have much more um, successful phishing attempts for an organization. Uh, and then when we think about the industry angle from a telco point of view, if you're able to steal a lot of telco data around um, consumers, uh, you could use that for a large-scale um, SIM swap campaign uh, from, from, you know, from a threat actor point of view. So you know, I think, I think the, the threat actors are finding very innovative or maybe unique ways to be able to leverage organizations' data rather than not just stealing it and holding it for ransom or for extortion, but it's, it's really how they're using that data to, to enable you know, secondary attacks. The CRM providers, are, are they stepping up here or are they reaching out to their customers and saying, you know, make sure that you're interacting with us in a secure way? Anything happening from that end? Yeah, I think we're seeing CRM providers um, establish more secure options within their platforms, right? Like being able to use two-factor authentication, et cetera. And I think that's great. I, I think organizations will also need to understand that this is now becoming uh, a true target for threat actors. And, and then before, yes, it was always important, but it was never seen as a, you know, a, a true target for threat actors. Uh, and I think organizations have spent a lot of time, especially regulated organizations, have spent time understanding their important data, but I think now, or I say regulated data, but I think threat actors are now being able to leverage non-regulated data for very, uh, again, for, for weaponizing for secondary attacks, for, for more innovative and unique ways. Um, so, I know I would say to organizations, just we need to think about um, data a little bit more broadly rather than just point-in-time regulated data that's required to be secured. I think we need to think about a, a broader data protection strategy for organizations. And you know, I, I think they also need to think about the CRM systems um, with the same level of security controls as they would for other systems. Uh, I, I think these have just been you know, overlooked in the past for, for a large part. All right. Well, interesting insights for sure. Uh, Rob Boyce, thanks so much for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, Proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. 